Welcome to the Middle East Center's Friday seminar. My name is Walter Armbrust. I'm hosting tonight. Good for me to do so. Normally it's Eugene Rogan, but I'm very happy to do this, this one in particular. Tonight's talk is co-sponsored by the Oxford Arab Society as well as the Middle East Center. We're very happy about that as well. Our speaker is Carl Sharrow. He's an architect, a satirist, and a commentator on the Middle East. He told me not to read the titles of his many books, so I won't read all of them. One of them is, And Then God Created the Middle East and said, Let There Be Breaking News, which is the title of the lecture tonight. And it's also the title of this little book, which is on sale outside in the lobby for five pounds. So you can acquire a copy of that after the lecture is over. He also has a number of publications on architecture, which I won't read out to you because he asked me not to. He's also written for a number of international publications. I'll read a couple of them. Foreign Policy, Atlantic Magazine, the Los Angeles Review of Books. Pretty high profile places. He blogs at a website called Carl Remarks. I ran across this, I think, in 2012 when I was in Cairo when the January 25th Revolution was on. And I remember he used to have a Tetris game, and a Tetris is this game you play online with blocks that fall down and you have to turn them so you can fall exactly the right way and fill in all the spaces, but it was dictator Tetris. Um, and I wasted a lot of time website. He's spoken on, on many topics, satire, art, architecture, urbanism, and politics. He's presented his argument for open borders in a TEDx talk in London in 2011. And with one other thing I wanted to mention here, oh yes, the simple one-sentence explanation of what caused ISIS. I remember that one circulating on Facebook, and I look forward to hopefully hearing about that in tonight's lecture. So, with no further ado, I'm going to turn things over to Carl. I hope you'll enjoy this lecture. I'm sure it's going to be great. We don't feature satire very often at the Middle East Center, so it would be a welcome change from our usual diet of doom and gloom. <laughs> for chasing me over there for two years to come over here to do this talk. Um, he used threats, he used the intimidation. <laughs> no, not really. It didn't take that much for me to come and it's a great opportunity to be here. And I want to thank him, I want to thank the center, and I want to thank Kaya as well for helping us organize this. It's a relief that I'm not the most controversial speaker tonight in Oxford. <laughs> I'll try my best, though. Can I just get a measure of the room by a show of hands? How many people know anything at all about me that you didn't just find it out from the introduction by Walter? Okay, great. Half and half. And how many people understand Arabic? Don't worry, it's not a requirement. Shoot. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be talking about my satirical experience tonight, which started around 2011-2012, and it's a form of online satire that kind of took a paper form with the book that Jay recently published. So first, and I think if you if you happen to have seen my kind of avatar over here, I get asked where did that come from, and it came from a series of cartoons that I did that are called "The Phoenicians Invent Everything." I'm Lebanese by background, by birth, and lived most of my life there. And we have this thing in Lebanon where we claim to have invented everything. 
And this one, this one in particular, what, can you read it? Is the text big enough? Or do you want me to read it in my Lebanese accent? <laughs> I did several of those. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> and eventually I started doing videos, which unfortunately we figured out tonight they can't play from PowerPoint, so I'm going to have to do it like this.
And I thought, oh, it's a sign of something seriously wrong happening. There's a fox in Tahrir Square, bushy tail and thickly fur. And this is the kind of what passes for analysis. So that led me on to one of my favorite first satirical pieces that I'm going to read for you tonight. And it's kind of a combination of satire of several of these pieces that came around that time. And it's called Reporting from Syria with Sensational Quotes in the Headline. Our writer reports from the frontiers of his fertile imagination with superb attention to detail and amusing historical facts. As I got in the car, a 1962 Mercedes built in the same factory where my father had once fought the German army in 1917. If you're familiar with this, he has to talk about that in every article. <laughs> the driver smiled and nodded wisely, as all taxi drivers in the Middle East do when they're driving a foreign journalist around. <laughs> Ahead lay a deceptively empty stretch of road that my imagination quickly filled with the mental image of Sardin shoes, soldiers marching along, primarily to illustrate my excellent knowledge of history. The man back at the hotel had warned me about the false tranquility of this part of Aleppo that I was about to visit. He only identified himself as the raven. But something told me that I must trust this man, dressed strangely in a abaya made of black feathers, despite the searing heat. I have stopped long ago questioning those mysterious men I encounter while reporting in the Middle East. And so too have my editors. <laughs> the raven sipped his black tea, sweetened with spoonfuls of the local cane sugar that was first processed when the Persians ruled this part of the Fertile Crescent. Then looked at me with his piercing eyes that looked more menacing above his long beak. Ask for Abu Muhammad. He would talk to you. He said, Muhammad, but I have this habit of misspelling Arab names. <laughs> when I left, the raven had disappeared. If it weren't for the black feather on the floor, I would have thought that he was a mirage. Back on the road, the driver slowed, then took a turn between two huge rocks that resembled the lion about to brush its teeth. As he sped past, I glanced a seven-year-old child in a green and white t-shirt being hurried along by his worried mother and her brother-in-law's cousin who had recently come back from Canada. <laughs> Troubling times. <laughs> Inexplicably, in this paragraph, I am suddenly transported to a room that the army is using as a temporary operations room. On the wall, above a wedding portrait of the previous occupiers, who now run a falafel shop in Brighton, <laughs> and a large map of the city, the commander, a 35-year-old major from Tartus, who liked fishing in his spare time, described to me what they are doing there. I quickly lost interest, as I was more interested in dramatic anecdotes. <laughs> also, he was speaking to me in Russian, which I didn't understand. The soldiers outside talked to me more openly. They had interrupted the football game. They were playing with empty B-67 ammunition bags. The goal was a makeshift target between two T-72 tanks, which for some reason I must mention in all my articles. <laughs> One told me about the giant leaping Chechen fighters that he had come across only three days ago, but I sternly told him that it's my job to make things up, not his. Instead, I asked him to tell me about his fiancé and his plans to open an internet cafe when the war was over. When I finally made it to Abu Muhammad's Haidar that afternoon, the sun was hanging low in the sky, its golden disk reminiscent of the famous necklace that the Emperor Aurelian had presented to Zenobia, the Queen of Palmyra, <laughs> before taking her in chains to Rome. Have we not learned anything in the Middle 
<laughs> Abu Muhammad gave me a different story to the one that Major Simba. I know, I'm the only one who meets people with such names in the Middle East. <laughs> Admirated. Something about the need for political change, but my mind drifted as I observed the partially collapsed gateway that had stood intact for 743 years. The stones of Syria can tell its stories better than most men. Later, as Abu Muhammad bid me farewell, I asked about the raven. He looked alarmed as he told me that the raven died six months ago. As usual, I will end with a completely irrelevant question that has nothing to do with the rest of the article, and that leaves you even more baffled. Could it be that the current conflict is the logical outcome of Alembi's reluctance to engage the local chieftains? Did King Faisal make a fatal mistake in the summer of 1932? <laughs> what is really the point of those open-ended questions? Could they be a useful way to imply that I'm world-weary and have seen too much? <laughs> so from then on, this interest in how the Middle East is represented in some Western punditry kind of grew, and I, I was doing various things, we're going to see a lot of them tonight, to comment about this relationship between... <laughs> 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 And then eventually, and I'm not going to read all of this, I started thinking, you know, Western journalists do so much for us. And I needed to write something by way of gratitude. Because I really kind of respect this enlightenment that they bring to the region. I'm going to read a bit of this one, and you can always go and check it on the blog. An adoring profile of a Western journalist. Should I start from the beginning? <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to make the room lights up as soon as he walks in. He's dressed in one of those khaki trousers that have many pockets. They're brimming with biscuits that he gently distributes to little brown kids when he's on one of his expeditions. You don't get to be an accomplished Western journalist without understanding the way to the hearts of the natives, after all. What makes a Western journalist so special? It's more than just a passport and a fortunate place of birth. The Western journalist embodies the voice of authority like no other kind of journalist can ever do. The Western journalist is compassionate, sensitive, knowledgeable, and above all, Western. <laughs> the Western journalist is a saber of truth, shining light onto the dark places we don't understand. And yet, there have been very few adoring profiles of the Western journalist and the role he or she plays in quenching our thirst for compassionate journalism and the fuzzy glow of enlightened inquiry, particularly of the daring Western journalist who is not afraid or reluctant to make him or herself the center of contention in whatever they are reporting on. Stories only acquire meaning when they are reflected to the prism of the complex personality of the Western journalist. And I'll leave you to read that on your own, if you wish, from the blog. Then eventually I started to look at this notion of Middle East geographies, and the reason for that was there's a kind of a seasonal crop of articles that come out in a particular time every year. Basically, we should partition Syria, let Iraq die, the case for partition, <laughs> and I wanted to situate that in, in the context of this repeated attempt at, you know, redecorating the Middle East that Western pundits kind of engage in. 
And sometimes, actually, I discovered that I do things preemptively. So this thing came after I started doing those, and it was the New York Times offering to solve the problems of the Middle East by splitting five countries into 14. But I want to draw your attention to the great understanding of the culture of the Middle East. So we basically, we have Shiatistan, <laughs> Wahhabistan, then parts of Syria. This is really not my satire. This is an actual thing that came up. Sunnistan, and then the Druze get like a, a small red square for some reason. <laughs> Actually, a few years before that, I had sort of done my own imagination of how we can solve the Middle East using this Western methodology, which is the fashionable alternative to sites people. And the colors, if you can read them, so you get the green, the dark green is the Sunnis, the light green is Shias, and Christians are the orange, and pink is the others, and so on. And then the first attempt was, what if we kind of did it in horizontal stripes, and then everyone can have access to the sea? <laughs> but then I thought maybe vertical stripes is more thinning. <laughs> now why not we mixed it up a little bit? Because <laughs> the Middle East is a mosaic. <laughs> and eventually I learned the point of Then from there on there was this notion, you know, that the Middle East is all about Sunnis and Shias fighting each other and that led me to the idea of the Shia croissant. <laughs> And again, if we look at the coverages coming around that time, it's the largest ethnic group in the Arab world, the Sunni Muslim fields in circles. Syria Sunni Muslims need a homeland of their own, you know? So there was a kind of, again, a slew of these attempts. And again, I thought, well, Westerners are right when they kind of propose. We need, we need to learn from them. And again, I'm not gonna read all of this. So this was, this blog post is called, it's ever so simple, a tribal map of the Middle East. And the idea was, we keep being told that the Middle East is a bunch of tribes, and those tribes, you know, are basically the sects that we have. So what if you actually took that at face value, and I wrote this guide. I'm going to read a couple of bits of it, and it was kind of doing an introduction for every sect. So the first one is the Sunnis. The Sunnis are the largest tribe in the Middle East, primarily because there are so many of them. <laughs> they are described as the sleeping giant of the Middle East, although sometimes they are more of a crouching giant, or a giant that is about to stand up. By the way, those, all of those cliches that I use, they're quite frequent in Middle Eastern coverage. And again, I don't have to make things up. I just have to rearrange them on a page and press publish. Many of the old dynasties of the Middle East were Sunnis, such as the Umayyads, the Mamluks, and the Ottomans were very good at making furniture. This explains the sense of development that Sunnis have, and they tend to walk around strutting like they own the place. Due to their vast wealth, they do actually own the place. In addition to other valuable assets in Europe and America, the leaders of the Sunnis are divided into two, oil sheikhs and religious sheikhs, but the two should not be confused. I'm just kind of tantalizing you with this, and you can read about the others, but I'm going to read a bit about the Christians as well. The Christians are divided into a number of smaller tribes, such as the Copts, who claim to be the original inhabitants of Egypt, the Assyrians, who claim to be the original inhabitants of Iraq, the Syriacs, who claim to be the original inhabitants of Syria, and the Maronites, who claim to be the original inhabitants of the universe. <laughs> 
And then I, again, I started to think, you know, why am I just kind of commenting on this? I need to help with doing some explainers. The explainers were starting to come around that time. I've got all this material. I'm in the West. I understand the, the kind of the Middle Eastern culture. I really need to kind of explain these two cultures to each other. And in particular, there's this notion of the magical line that if you draw on a map, it will explain everything about the Middle East. And I think you can see how this one that was perfectly kind of plotted using scientific data. Uh, <laughs> and clearly, the bit that we couldn't get enough research about is it's very dangerous to do research in Europe, so we didn't obtain that one. Sorry, can, I, can I just say, I'm going to pause this for a second. So I'm an architect by training, and uh, while I love this building, <laughs> you know I'm going with this. Simple one sentence explanation for what caused ISIS? Hippos. 
the failure of post-colonial elites to establish genuine democratic societies that fostered a sense of national unity, opting instead for military dictatorships that eroded the potential for economic and political growth, coupled with a historic mistake of the progressive parties and their appeasements toward democratic rulers, contributing to the evisceration of alternative political frameworks that could create organic resistance toward external meddling, hegemony, and outright military intervention, leaving a radical <laughs> as the only remaining ideological platform capable of mobilizing the disenfranchised, exacerbated by the global decline of universal ideas and the rise of identity as the prime mobilizer, and enabled by political and financial support from bureaucratic regimes aiming to shore up their legitimacy and made worse, creating the conditions for proxy wars and political, social, and economic upheaval, intensifying escalating conflicts and leading to a perpetual state of chaos, under which the revivalist religious political order embodied by the Taliban becomes attractive, particularly when coupled with the veterinarian <laughs> okay, then there came a moment when I think the hope represented by, this is taking a bleaker turn now, the hopes represented by the Arab uprisings I think were clearly dashed and I was sort of kind of trying to deal with the aftermath of that so I did a few things to reflect on it. And the kind of the abiding thing throughout for me was the thought that constantly being told Arabs are not ready for democracy, you're not suited for democracy, <coughs> the Middle East is not ready for democracy, and, and kind of that seemed to be vindicated at the time, momentarily, I guess, but I was kind of trying to capture the sense of what was happening at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> And basically, I thought, we shouldn't wait to write the history, because then it's all going to get messy. So I decided to write a preemptive history, which again, I'm going to share a little bit of it, and if you like it, you can obviously read it in the blog. Eleven days after Ben Ali's departure, a revolution started in Egypt, demanding President Hosni Mubarak step down. The revolution was started by Egyptian secularists which is an acronym made up of the names of the groups participating in the revolution, <laughs> such as the 6th of April movement, the 11th of April movement, the 10th of April movement, and so on. As the days passed, the Egyptian army was torn between its loyalty to Mubarak and the Egyptian desire to break Tunisia's record of 28 days for a dictator to step down. So it intervened and forced Mubarak to step down after 18 days, thus ensuring Egypt's name in the record books. Mubarak was given the choice between prison and exile in Saudi Arabia. So he chose prison. <laughs> Most historians agree that what happened next was quite complicated to get into, and it's generally agreed that it's best to skip a few paragraphs to the election of Field Marshal and Most Manly Man Abdel Fattah Hassisi to President of Egypt in 2014, where he stayed in power until 2032 or forever, whichever comes first. <laughs> it was Libya's turn next. According to an ancient Arab system that is based on observing the movement of the stars for a while and then realizing the futility of this and deciding to revolt. 
<laughs> the Libyan people decided to topple Gaddafi, but Gaddafi said he wasn't actually the leader, and reminded everyone of that episode in Seinfeld when Kramer couldn't be fired from his job because he wasn't actually employed by the corporation. At this point, the world held its breath because this was the first Arab revolt not directed against a Western-friendly regime, particularly if we ignore Tony Blair's groveling to Gaddafi and the CIA making use of his state-of-the-art torture facilities. I mean Gaddafi's torture facilities, not Tony Blair's, <laughs> because Blair preferred to rent torture facilities when he needed them, in keeping with his third-way political philosophy, <laughs> which highlighted the importance of public-private partnerships. <laughs> After observing the situation for a few months, the West leapt into action and decided that it would be convenient to abandon Gaddafi and try to look like the good guys. Gaddafi was given the choice between exile in Saudi Arabia and death. So he chose death. <laughs> Nobody knows exactly what happened next in Libya. But maybe if you're reading this in the future, you can tell us. And then, again, keeping with this theme of the Arab Spring postscript, by that point, I had really immense technical and financial capabilities, so I decided to produce a James Bond movie situated in the Middle East, and it's called Tears Will Fall in Arabia because of the tear gas. <laughs> and it's a, a more realistic Bond film. Can you read? Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, so with all my kind of success with the MENA studies, Middle East and North Africa, I decided to kind of turn my attention to <laughs> by founding the WENA Studies program, which is taken very seriously now by many universities, and I hope Oxford will be next. And the context for that, obviously, I was trying to find <laughs> and, and what I was really trying to do is say, like, the Middle East and Europe, we're kind of the Rachel and Ross of geopolitical history. We go way back, and, and then I thought, we actually have to plot this out. So this looked at Western invasions of the Middle East and North Africa, versus the other way around. <laughs> said, do a little bit of historic reenactment, what would the headlines have been around the time of the Crusades. And again, this theme of the ancient hatreds, which started to become very common, and I'm not going to read this one, but I decided to kind of turn it around and look at the, the conflict with Russia, which clearly was because of the differences between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. <laughs> and it's a kind of technique I use. <laughs> and again, you can, you can read that on the blog. But I was then more interested in those beautiful illustrations that started to come up with everyday life in the Middle East. And, you know, the depiction of the simplicity and banality of life the everyday moments, you know, just two Iranian women in a cafe. <laughs> Beautiful. I mean, this, this 
genuinely just it brings tears to my eyes and <laughs> capture this sense of the region, powerful stuff. So I decided to, <laughs> I, I decided to do something similar. <laughs> Good enough photographer to kind of capture this <laughs> in the West. Uh, I noticed that Westerners go to the hairdressers, uh, they have the same issue with the hair, it grows after a while. You can see these human connections. Uh, but this is one of my favorites. But and afterwards, I realized I was too close to this couple when I took that picture. <laughs> And again, this is very touching, you know. In, in their spare time, Westerners go to cafes just like us, we're all humans. And then in parallel, this survey came sometime, I think, around 2014, which was kind of a university asked people in the, in the Middle East that was what style of dress is appropriate for women in public. And it had to be like a, a gradation of, of headgear. And I was like, again, this is the scientific Western approach we can learn from that, so how about if we... <laughs> and then, 2016 happened, and it kind of made me, you know, it's a big turn in my career, because the center of attention kind of shifted, and I was very well positioned to take advantage of that and report on the kind of the problems of the West and translate them to an Eastern audience. Mm. This is one of my favorite memes, you know, the idea that 2016 the worst year. Anyway, so first thing that happened in 2016 was Brexit. Obviously. It has only been two years. <laughs> and I was thinking about it for a very long time, and I think, you know, <laughs> the UK was starting to feel like a very divided country, and I really wanted to help, right? And that was my solution, because that's exactly what the UK would have done or Britain would have done anywhere else, right? <laughs> <laughs> Subsequently, I decided it should have been better to call it Brexitania, not Libya. So the two countries are Brexitania and Romania. And then I thought, you know, these people, they really hate each other, the countries. That we really need to keep them separate, including kind of, I bet this, Berlin-style <laughs> divider right in the middle of Trafalgar Square. And then I thought, we really need to draw them up, right? <laughs> and it was done with kind of retro-colonial effects. So I, I learned a lot from the way the British and the French drew maps around the Middle East. And, and then the second thing that happened in 2016, <laughs> again here I thought I could genuinely use my skills to translate the American crisis to the Middle Eastern audience using the kind of language that we used to sort of the outgoing president. This was real-time coverage, by the way. President-elect was sort supported by the rural strongholds and extremist rebels, insurgent media, and obviously the outgoing president has the three traditional arms of the industrial military complex in the United States, Hollywood the media, and the secretive state security agencies. Obviously, they're quite strong with the urban strongholds. And uh, these are just some random symbols to fill the page. <laughs> and then I looked again, as well as the foreign backers of the, the two sides. Uh, Eventually, and a lot of people didn't get this piece when I wrote it, and the idea behind it was, for a long time we were told, you know, you're not ready for the democracy, you're not capable of understanding what democracy is about, 
after the election of Trump, I was like, this is my moment, you know? <laughs> you look like an Arab. So one of the things I predicted in this piece was that Trump was going to start running huge military parades in D.C., which effectively he tried to do, but he couldn't afford it. But then things started to get tough for Arabs after Trump got elected, you know, and I started feeling this uncomfortable because, you know, there's a lot of suspicion and antagonism toward Arabs, so trying, you know, not to act in a state. <laughs> and then funny enough, this idea of countries breaking up and started emerging in the context of WENA, including looking back at the... So there was like a... An egalitarian moment, you know, we were finally talking about the West the way with tradition, but in, in serious publications, the way that we talked about the Middle East. And then I thought, obviously, we have to draw them out. <laughs> and obviously, the only solution for Western Europe, you have these problems everywhere, you have them in Spain, you have them in France, and I plotted very accurately the electoral maps. <laughs> To redivide, so France is split between France and Gallia. Clearly, you have to keep them apart. Germany. Then, then I got a bit tired, so I swallowed a bunch of countries. Let's <laughs> <laughs> so get the Republic of London over here. England, Scotland, Ireland. Revived Russia as well. And then I decided, while I'm at it, I'm gonna claim back Sicily. <laughs> And you know, from 2016 onwards, I was thinking very hard about what's happening in Europe. And you know, I tried my best to help. You know, I drew all these maps and suggested dividing the countries up and started thinking of things like, how do we help? Like in the case of Britain, where you've got these two sides that absolutely hate each other, Leavers and Remainers. Um, how can we help them get closer? Do we like organize a charity event, charity concert in Cairo? Bring <laughs> like 10 labor children and 10 remainder children and put them on stage together. <laughs> or do we like do a training, peace building training, cultural bridge building training in Beirut, where again we get leavers and remainers and teach them to look at each other as humans? their shared humanity. And then I was having all these kind of ideas and how can we help, you know, this is this is unusual. These people are so divided and see it all around the West. And then then it hit me, you know. <laughs> Thank you very much.